in. There's Pastor Appreciation Month. There's never like Congregation Appreciation Month, and we really do love you guys. Steph's not here. She would tell you that as well. Uh, we love you guys. Like I said in that video, you've been with us through some wild seasons. I know we've been through some of you with some of you through some wild seasons, but I don't even know if it compares, right? Adoptions, brain surgeries, and uh, we love you guys. Uh, again, we're going to talk tonight about what we, we really just define as our moment, being family from the first hello, and you guys have become family quickly. Like, we've, we've been here for four years, but most of you became family within months, uh, just doing life together. And again, we're going to hit on that verse tonight from First Thessalonians, I believe it's 2.8, where Paul basically says, I, I loved you so much, it was my honor not just to share the gospel, but our lives as well. So thank you again. Um, but as we were talking about, one of those videos <laughs> was uh, Oktoberfest, and that's in Two weeks. So Emily Lee, oh, thank you. Um, it's a small sanctuary. I couldn't find her, right? She is running the sign-ups after service. You can sign up for a trunk. Uh, you can uh, sign up to serve. There's not a whole lot of areas that really need serving, but you can sign up to host a trunk because every year we do about 20 to 25 trunks. We have about 500 people that come through here. And how do you, you, you would, it would be terrible if we get these flyers printed, send them to the schools, uh, advertise through all these different outlets, and then, you know, nothing's there. Nothing's worse than false advertising, right? The, the Popeye's sandwich craze where people would be in the drive through for an hour and a half and there'd be a sign on the door that said there's no sandwiches but happened to one of my friends right went to Popeye's they had the sign on the door no more sandwiches but the drive-through was like 45 minutes so he got to the window no sandwich that's why nobody right now is thinking about Popeye's and Chick-fil-a still reigns supreme because false advertising false advertising is terrible and and I need to apologize because last weekend from the pulpit I was talking about our discipleship model 12 pathways 24 virtues and I'm like if you've never gotten one of these books grab one on the way out they're at the info center and apparently we had like three. And uh, many of you wanted more, so I grabbed a whole stack. There's as many of these as you could grab in the info center. So tonight, find somebody in a blue shirt. Calvin will help you out. These are in the info center. If you want to just read our discipleship model, it's a quick read. Again, you can read it in one evening. Pat yourself on the back for reading a book, right? Knock it right out. But we've been in this series, Why Do Be?, we were talking about the vision statement that Nika said in the video announcements, to build the church Jesus envisioned and to love the world he died to save. And so this vision statement is built on three declarative statements that Jesus makes in his ministry in the Gospels. And the first is in Luke 19.10. And this is what we talked about in the first week of this series here in Suffolk. And it's where we get Jesus' why, his mission statement, why he came to earth. And he says he came to seek and save the lost. And so each of these words also give us a question, and we asked ourselves that week, is Jesus' why my why? Is Jesus' reason for coming my reason for living? That's an important question. And then the second week we looked at the do, which is Jesus' declarative statement in Matthew that I will build my church. And the question we asked as we studied the book of Acts and, and, and what Jesus spoke before he ascended, we asked, are his final commissions, his final concerns, my first concern. And then we looked at B last week where it's his statement on his disciples in John 13, 35, where he says, they will know you are my disciples because of what? Your love for one another. Being people of love that love others and love God. And so we asked this question, okay, what would the church look like if everybody looked like me? Because we talked about being people of, of the 24 virtues and walking the 12 pathways. If the whole church looked like me, would those disciplines be active? Would virtue be present or absent? And each week we've asked, okay, how? How does all this fit together? 
How does building the church and growing to look more like Jesus seek and save the lost? And we've looked at John chapter 12, verse 32, where Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people from myself. And that is a literal statement. Specifically speaking, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be raised on a cross and die. Right, the act of salvation that would draw all men to himself. But this is also a prophetic statement. And people may not see the risen Christ like they did in Acts 1 between his resurrection and his ascension, but they should see the body of Christ rising up, the church being built. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the church being built isn't about buildings and brick and mortar, but about flesh and blood. Us growing to look more and more like Jesus. So in a sense, it's not just the corporate body of Christ rising up, but it's each one of us as individuals painting portraits of Jesus with our lives. I'm a recovering art major, so the painting analogy came natural. Where, where every day we lay down more paint on the canvas. Every decision we make is another stroke on the canvas. Every conversation we have is another choice about tone and, and, and what we're doing with our life. And the question is, what portrait are you painting? I saw a quote by D.L. Moody just this morning where he says, out of 100 men, one will read the Bible, the other 99 will read the Christian. And so the question is, when people are reading your life, what portrait are you painting? When they look at your life, does it look like Jesus and the virtues that he exhibited, or is it something you're winging, right? And I, I segue from that into tonight because this is uh, probably one of the most famous portraits of Jesus that has ever been painted. If I can get it to switch, it is the Solomon head or the head of Christ. Can you hit, me, hit that for me, Dustin? Thanks, man. Props to Dustin. Nobody ever notices the tech guy until something happens. Dustin's serving faithfully, as usual. But this is known as, back it up, <laughs> the head of Christ or the Solomon head. This is the most popular, most recognizable portrait of Jesus we have, perhaps out of the Last Supper by da Vinci. And it was painted by Warner Solomon in 1940. Since then, some 500 million prints have been printed and purchased and sold and exchanged hands. So it is an extremely popular painting, so popular that studies have been done on this painting. There was a, a, a man who did surveys and interviews of hundreds of people about their feelings for this portrait of the head of Christ. And as one woman put it, she said, the picture appeals to her simply because it shows just what Jesus looked like, to which I have to throw a flag, right? I gotta say time out. That looks more like a Midwestern college grad than a... Middle Eastern man who was born and lived in the Middle East, and, and his ministry was in the Middle East, and which is where Jesus ministered, if first time in church. But you'll see all variations of, of Jesus painted. Right? You'll, you'll find uh, paintings of, of Jesus with dreadlocks. We went to India, and there was paintings of Jesus where he, he was portrayed as Indian. You look hard enough, there's, there's Asian Jesuses. All these different portrayals of Jesus, and, and it Begs the question, why do they exist? And it's because putting our face on Jesus makes him relatable, makes him approachable. The familiarity and the tenderness of this Solomon head is what makes it a, such a popular portrait of Jesus in our culture. But I bring it up to beg the question, are we being made more and more into the image of Jesus or have we shaped God into our own image? Because there's an old song and, and the, the chorus sings to this impulse where it says, we put a mirror in the sky 
We look up and see ourselves magnified. Our God looks just like you and I, yet we've put a mirror in the sky. You know, you look at history. The ancient Greeks were some of the best storytellers that there's ever been. They were thinkers and philosophers, and they, they considered the human condition, and then they, their imaginations put their observations into story form. They basically projected the, the human condition and amplified them onto these stories of deities and different characters in their folklore. And one of the ones that we're probably familiar with in our language and culture, because we have a word from it, is narcissist, which is where we get the word narcissistic. And it's because the truth of the tale resonates throughout history. It's, it's a story of the human condition. He's a figure from Greek mythology that was so impossibly handsome and proud of it that he scorned all lovers until he finally, for the first time, saw his reflection in a body of water and fell so in love with it and became so obsessed with it that he eventually drowned and died in his pursuit of his own reflection. You laugh. But like many Greek tales, it speaks volumes about the human condition throughout mankind's existence. We seek out mirrors, reflections, people that look like us, talk like us, react like us, vote like us. We naturally are drawn to mirrors, people that reflect us. We don't just put a mirror in the sky. We like to live with mirrors all around us. And the Greeks knew this. And ultimately, narcissism as we know it is what sparks classism, racism, sexism, and all the other isms (laughs) and divisions. One such ism is just tribalism, which we see so much in our culture, us and them. There's a line in the sand, there's us and we retreat to our corner, and when issues arise, there's them and they retreat to their corner. Everything from blue lives matter and black lives matter, black and white, red and blue. Then there's the childish stuff too, like Dunkin' Donuts coffee versus Starbucks coffee, or uh, Marvel versus DC Comics, or Red Sox versus Yankees, you know, just all these ways where time and time again we get our identity and our sense of self by both inclusion and then exclusion of other people. We're social organisms and we seemed hardwired to make dichotomies in the world. And we shape our identity with dividing barriers. And I say all that tonight because we like to build our barriers with mirrors. We surround ourselves with those that reflect us. And again, tonight we're talking about what we call our moment as a church, right? Every church has a message. Hopefully every church has a mission. But every church, whether they're intentional about it or not, has a moment where you come to a service and this is what you feel. Hours that we verbalized for the past decade plus is whether you felt it or heard it, that your family from the first hello. Again, hopefully if you've never even heard us say that, you've felt that. You feel like family. Because being a welcoming church is something that we've cherished from the jump, both in Newport News and here in Suffolk. Again, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, we loved you so much that we were honored not just to share the gospel, but our lives as well. There's a doing life together exercising the dozens upon dozens of the one another's in the New Testament that resembles a family of faith. But then the question is, okay, what about those that don't look like us, think like us, act like us, the people on the other side of the millions of lines in the sand in our culture, and we get clear instructions in Romans 15, 7. If you memorize one verse from tonight, write one verse down, let it be this one, where Paul says, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. 
Accept each other just as Christ has accepted you. Why? So that God will get the glory. You know, we've realized over the years, again, decade plus, that we've ministered in our culture, littered with all the lines in the sand. We've realized that being family from the first hello is so much bigger than just a moment on a Saturday or a weekend. But it's also bigger than the present. In order to fully appreciate our moment, we have to look back in history. In a sense, you have to go back in order to know the path forward. And narcissism, tribalism in all its forms has been a problem throughout human history, not just America, and including in the church. You go back to the early church history in the Roman Empire, division was a major issue. Racism, sexism, classism, you name it. And not just against the Romans, but throughout the culture, even in church culture. Where God's people, the Jews, where God wanted to reconcile the Gentiles, but there were so many centuries and generations of division that when Paul spoke of the dividing wall of hostility in Ephesians, where he talks about how Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Yes, he's talking about sin and the consequences of sin, but there was a literal dividing wall in the temple that kept the Gentiles out. Where it basically said, I don't have it memorized, like, you come past this place, you're risking your life. Like, we'll kill you. Basically, it said Jews only. Can you imagine coming to a church and it said males only, whites only, blacks only? And you're thinking, really? But that was the case. There was so much division. But the gospel melted down walls and barriers that existed for centuries. The first Christians in Acts saw themselves as a multicultural family that destroyed walls of hostility, and hatred through the blood of Jesus. And it's what inspired Paul to speak some of my favorite words in the Bible in Galatians 3.28, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The church was the first institution in history, if you ask historians, the first institution in history to bring Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, onto equal footing. It was the revolution at the heart of the revival. What's powerful is, uh, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, there was the Azusa Street Revival, the turn of the 20th century, that rivaled any that the world has seen since Acts in the early church. And it was led by a young black pastor named William Seymour, who was this one-eyed son of a former slave. And he actually, I was just reading up on it this week, he went to L.A., and the first sermon he preached was on the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, prayer languages. The church was so offended, they locked him out. <laughs> They literally kicked him out, locked the door. So he's like, okay, what am I going to do? And he started prayer meetings. And the Holy Spirit fell. And crowds and masses gathered for prophecies and healings. Some 1,500 people would fit in this old dilapidated building with eight-foot ceilings, a terrible place. Like, if I'm looking for a building, I'm not looking for a busted-down building with an eight-foot high ceilings in the sanctuary. But people would pile inside from morning to midnight to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you just read up on this revival, there were prophecies, there were uh, miracles. And maybe the greatest miracle, though, was that this revival was expressed in love across ethnic lines, across generational lines, and gender lines. It was truly a priesthood of all believers. There were blacks and whites in leadership. There were men and women that were ministering. And this was at the turn of the 20th century. When racism was running rampant, when women's suffrage was still in the middle of the battle, still being fought for. But you know, a lot of people are familiar with the revival, but what some are less familiar with is what caused it to end, what fractured this thing. And in October of 1906, 
a white pastor from the Midwest by the name of Charles Fox Parham was invited by Seymour to preach. And instead of offering encouragement and direction, he saw what he considered the great sin of America, the mixing of races. And in addition to calling it things that I'm not going to repeat from the pulpit, he accused it of being a front for interracial relations. So what he did was he started his own quote-unquote revival right, across the street, which whites could go to and separate themselves from what was going on at the Azusa Street Revival. So, of course, predictably, it didn't last. But the wedge of division had already been placed, and more pressure and more pressure was applied until white pastors that had become a part of this black church of God in Christ were pressured to go off and start their own all-white churches, all-white denominations. No movement, no revival, and no church is immune from our flesh's tendency to surround ourselves with mirrors, surround ourselves with what makes us comfortable, people that think like us, people that look like us, why divisions can creep in and cripple, even the greatest of revivals. And the church today, you talk to pastors, you, people are like, yes, we want to see another revival like Azusa Street, yet we don't weigh the history of division and its presence today. And there's a special kind of self-centeredness where you're in the present and you think anything that happened before me doesn't really affect what's happening now. But man, history affects generation after generation. Azusa Street Revival was just at the turn of the 20th century. We're at the turn of the 21st century. And our struggles and divisions and isms caused by narcissism, if anything, they're amplified because of technology. Right? Technology is awesome. I can go on Twitter right now and get news from the other side of the world. I mean, I follow accounts from India where my son is from just because I can, right? I can know what's going on on the other side of the world, but yet in the other side of the coin, the side of the coin that we often lean into is we can curate the voices that surround us. And in a society where we above all else, like we want to be surrounded with what makes us happy, voices that disagree with us, of course, are gonna get discarded. Being challenged on your point of view and your heartfelt convictions never feels good. So we often unfollow or mute something that would challenge or compete. And what happens is we create echo chambers. You know, there's a, a less famous part and character in the story of Narcissus, and it's a character called Echo. Now, Echo was talkative. She was loquacious. And uh, she interrupted Zeus's wife, Hera, so much that Hera eventually was like, oh, I'm going to make you quiet. You're only allowed to talk when you're repeating what somebody else just said. So she curses Echo, and Echo goes on her way, only able to repeat what other people say. And she comes upon Narcissus at the rock. She's behind the rock. She's watching him, looking at his reflection, and he's saying, you're beautiful, right? Saying all these things to his reflection, and she begins repeating it. And it makes Narcissus even more convinced that this reflection is a being that he's going to chase down and meet, and that's what causes his death. Why do I share any of this? Why do I share this? Because, again, it speaks to our human tendencies. We love to set up echo chambers because it makes us comfortable. It affirms us. But what it ultimately does and what it spiritually does is damaging. I share about narcissists and I share about echo because when our family of faith is contingent on people that look like us and sound like us, we've begun worshiping ourselves, not God. Right? When, when you put a, a boundary on your family of faith where it's got to be people that look like me and sound like me, eventually you're just worshiping yourself. 
And I've truly come to believe that in our modern era where we can have so many echo chambers and, and so many mirrors set up around us, one of the greatest gifts of the church is that it takes those echo chambers and that hall of mirrors and it breaks it. It shatters it. And it's healing and it's necessary and it's, it's a gift because you're not going to have those in heaven. You can't take those to heaven. You know, we look back at history, but at the end of history, what did the apostle Paul see and hear in Revelation? John heard people crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, but this wasn't some hall of mirrors. It says in Revelations 4 that after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. No one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, I think in our Western church culture, can't speak for the other side of the world, but in our church culture, so often the focus is on us getting to heaven. I want to make sure my ticket is secure. But we forget that the prayer Jesus taught us to pray in the Our Father wasn't, God, get me out of here, right? Get me to heaven. It was your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You read your Bible, our focus should just as much, if not more so, be heaven coming to earth as it is us getting to heaven. The Bible will tell you, look, your assurance of salvation is solid. The cross is going nowhere. But our focus should be heaven coming to earth. Yet a Christian in our culture can easily go their entire lives without spending time with those who are significantly different than them. But the Bible says heaven will be a place where we're surrounded eternally by all tribes, tongues, and backgrounds. Right? Our prayer should be that heaven comes to earth. Our moment and our church should be one that reflects this. So again, what we've come to realize is that family from the first hello means more than a smile and a handshake and feeling welcome when you come to a service. It also means embracing diversity, not uniformity, right, but unity amidst diversity. Worshiping means doing life with, going to life groups with, standing in a pew with, people that maybe look different than you, talk different than you, again, vote different than you, eat different than you, right? It means being a place where people from all backgrounds can step forward and follow Christ together. It means being comfortable with the church shattering your echo chamber and giving you something better, a diverse family of faith. Because the church is no echo chamber. It should be a diversity chamber that reflects heaven. There's an author, Christina Cleveland. She's also a psychologist, sociologist, all those words. But she wrote a book called Disunity in Christ, and there's a great quote within it where she said, people can meet God within their cultural context, but in order to follow God, they must cross into other cultures because that's what Jesus did in the incarnation in the cross. Discipleship is cross-cultural. When we meet Jesus around people who are just like us and then continue to follow Jesus with people who are just like us, we stifle our growth in Christ and open ourselves up to a world of division. However, when we're rubbing elbows in Christian fellowship with people who are different from us, we can learn from each other and grow more like Christ. What she's saying is that to live in a hall of mirrors and to set up an echo chamber, it stifles your growth and ultimately it hurts the church. And it keeps us from following Christ. And she says, in order to follow God, they must cross into other cultures because that's what Jesus did in the incarnation in the cross. Maybe you're saying prove it. Jesus to his disciples says, follow me. Right? Those were his first words to his disciple. And from the first followers who followed Jesus in the flesh, following Jesus meant reconciliation. Like imagine being a Jewish fisherman like some of those disciples. You've grown up in these small towns working day and night 
this blue-collar job, fishing to serve your family, stay afloat, literally. But you're under oppression by this Roman government. And with this Roman government, you had to pay taxes. And with taxes, there are tax collectors. And often these tax collectors were your own people, other Jews who would align themselves with the Romans and say, I can make a living off of this if I just collect taxes. And they made their living by charging interest. And whatever interest they charged, that's what they kept. So they're breaking the backs of their own people, aligned with the people who are oppressing your family. You can imagine how this goes on long enough, all the things you think about tax collectors. Good for nothing. Traitors. Right? Broken trash. And then these fishermen, right, start following Jesus. And right there in the 12 disciples, in all their prayer meetings, in all their life groups, in all their circles and and talks with Jesus, face-to-face daily, they're, they're with Matthew former tax collector, who was called by Jesus to follow. And all of these disciples are called to confront their stereotypes and love him as a brother, be reconciled to him. Again, from the beginning, the very first disciples who followed Jesus' command to follow, right, following Christ and reconciliation have been inseparable. And then in his ministry, right, you look at Jesus' ministry from Samaritan women to a Roman centurion to a backwoods prophet to religious leaders, Jesus never let a line in the culture's sand keep him from fellowship and keep him from reconciliation. Again, our impulse in our flesh is tribalism, to live in a hall of mirrors, to live in an echo chamber. But following Jesus will always take you across lines in the sand in the name of love. Jesus lived a lifestyle that wasn't us versus them, but me for them. If there was those people, you find those people were often the people he was trying to meet with. And, and, and interact with and reach. So the question is, why isn't the church, why doesn't it behave in the same way? Well, like much of our culture rooted in tribalism, so much of our media is rooted in division. Whether it's like the shows on ESPN where they're debating back and forth and there's winners and losers, or it's cable television, cable news, right? It lives off division. If there's not any division, they fabricate some because that's where they get their ratings from. It's a secret. <laughs> but those people... On the other side of the debate, those people on the other side of the issue, those people who think differently than you, they become characters. Whereas like all progressives are fill in the blank. All conservatives are fill in the blank. Everybody that voted for Trump is a fill in the blank. All immigrants are fill in the blank. Just like all tax collectors are fill in the blank. Jesus always calls us to see beyond the broken cultural characters and see another's common humanity again. But you know what happens in the American church, the statistic I've shared again and again this year is that over 80% of the church in America doesn't open their Bible outside of church. And then you weigh that against how much media where there's just reeks of division are we taking in every day, every week, and it shows. It shows in the way we love. It shows in the walls that we let remain standing in our lives. It shows in the lines in the sand that we operate from when we operate from us and them. I shared this Honestly, it was just a few weeks ago in the summer, but I'll share it again. When Steph and I were in the adoption process, right, we started with Ethiopia. Eventually, we had to pivot to India. And we had multiple conversations with people who were were like, why don't you adopt from your own soil? Why don't you take care of your own? And like I shared a few weeks ago, what I wanted to say was, well, the nice thing I would say is that my love and the love of Christ is not based on politics or proximity, but based on humanity, right? Jesus died for the world. There was no border on that. What I also wanted to say was that you can take all these 
excuses, sophisticated excuses to withhold love that are based on all this division that's borderline demonic. You can throw it back to the pit of hell and let it burn. But I have self-control, right? So I didn't say that to anybody that, that talks to me. But you'll see the fruit of the gospel in your life and how the gospel is changing you by the way you define your own, by who you'd host at a dining room table, whether it's in your home or for lunch during the week, by who you let your son or daughter marry or not marry, by who you consider adopting or exclude from the conversation, because grace always replaces exclusion with embrace. Our impulse is to subscribe to tribalism, to form our identity based on inclusion and exclusion, but grace replaces exclusion with embrace. You know, everybody wants to, to diagnose American church culture and declare a path forward, and I don't have all the answers. But I would tell you tonight that the church doesn't need to see more agreement from pew to pew on the issues and topics of our day. We simply need to see more grace flowing from pew to pew. We don't need to see more agreement from pew to pew on all the topics that are trending on the internet. No, we just need to see more grace flowing one to the other pew to pew. The church where your family from the first hello should mean that there can be somebody here who thinks Trump is the man for this moment in our country and in our nation. And somebody that would have loved to see him impeached three weeks ago can worship together to the one who sits on the throne eternally. Right, where, where somebody who was born and raised in the 757 in Hampton Roads and somebody that immigrated last year can stand in a pew together and worship the God of all nations. Because there's no lines in the sand at the foot of the cross. There's no black or white, red or blue at the foot of the cross. There shouldn't be in his church. The Bible calls for unity. And it's unity, unity by definition, right, is found amidst diversity. Not uniformity nor found in agreement in all of life's details, but unity is found when we have grace for our distinct differences. And race and politics are huge. That's why I just spent such a large portion of this sermon addressing it. That's why we spent series in the past where you can go back and podcast twice in the history of our church addressing it. Because it's huge. It toppled revivals like Azusa Street. It's robbed the church of its witness again and again because it just division finds its way into the church where we should all be unified under the blood of Christ. But, you know, as I was prepping this week, I felt like there were three other ways that our, our mirrors can get in the way of, of loving one another, of embracing the family of faith, the, the, the family we're supposed to have in a, a local gathering, the church as defined in the New Testament. And they're often more subtle. I think the first one I was reflecting on is just mature believers and immature believers, right? New believers. I love this quote by Carl, Carlo Corretto, who says, God loves what is not yet what is still to come to birth. What we love in a person is what already is, virtue, beauty, courage, and hence our love is self-interested and fragile. God, loving what is not yet and putting faith in us, continually begets us since love is what begets. Love is what helps us emerge from our darkness and draws us to the light. And this is such a fine thing to do that God invites us to do the same. God loves what is not yet, we love people that are already people of virtue and lovable, but God invites us to love people that are still growing. And who isn't, right? And how much patience did God show me when I was a 21-year-old knucklehead walking into the church that I need to show other people that are still learning to follow God? When you can't love people for who they are, you can't respect them for what they've done, dare to love what's not yet. God loves people like that, the ones that are rough around the edges, the ones that are going to be out here in the parking lot cussing. I'm not saying any of y'all would do that. But, right, like th those are the people that should be in church. If you're seeking and saving the lost, you're calling them into the body of Christ. 
then there will be people rough around the edges who we're called to love, not look down on, not scorn. Like how many of you had the, the door, I don't know what kind of culture this was, but it don't seem as much anymore, where you got the door frame in your house, and every year you mark how tall you were, you're just growing. My parents did that. We haven't done it with Raj. Maybe we should. I don't know. But, uh, but at no point did my parents say, oh, sorry, buddy, you're 32 inches. Looks like you're never going to ride a roller coaster. Looks like you're never going to be able to play basketball. You're stuck. No, in, our, in your family, you understand when you do that, that where you are now, it's not where you're going to stay. And in the family of faith, there's this liberation in the realization that we're all unfinished products. God's still working in us. Our families get this as we grow. May our family of faith get that as we're all growing in less visible ways, but as the Holy Spirit is doing work in us. And may we show each other the same patience that God showed us when we were new believers, right? I was a mess. Can't speak for you. But as you grow, right, you develop passions. And really, you may not think of that, but it's another way where division can kind of take the back door into the church. You would think, how? Why? Well, I've had conversations with people as a pastor where you get the questions from, from say, somebody that's passionate about missions. How could, how, how come the rest of the church isn't this passionate about doing mission work, going on mission trips, funding it, right? Like, they've got a revelation and those, everybody else in the church, what's wrong with them? But what's up with all those other people is that they've been awakened to another passion, often a different passion. Right? And if they're not careful, they'd be like, well, why aren't these people over here passionate about people in prison? Why aren't these people over here concerned about trafficking? Why aren't these people over here, why don't they have a passion for the homeless? You know, Steph and I, if we weren't mindful of this, we could drift into something where it's like, why isn't everybody adopting kids? Right? Why isn't everybody passionate about orphans all over the world? It's Because God gives each of us different passions. And you know what, that's a gift. You know, your brother and sister, when you were growing up, if you had siblings, my brother was a cyclist. I played basketball, right? I, I, I drew. My sister played instruments. Like, there's different passions, different interests amongst each child. And in the, the family of faith, it can be the same way, and it's a gift. Because let me tell you, everybody can't do everything. Praise God. <laughs> everybody can't do everything. When people in here have different interests and passions, and we get to rally around them, or, or they get to pursue those passions and be filled by the Holy Spirit each weekend, that is a gift to the church. But then lastly, just another way that you can see weird division, and not necessarily in this building, is really just amidst churches. Right, we've realized that family, when we talk about being family from the first to low, it's not just amongst us here at City Life. But we're called as churches in Hampton Roads, both on the peninsula and in the south side. We're, we're a part of Capital C Church. Right? And there's no friend and foe or, or competition. Some churches would see another church down the street as competition for whatever. I don't know, right? We're called to be a family. The work that God calls us to do, reaching a whole city, reaching a nation, reaching the world, it's not going to happen by one church, but by many churches linking arms and working together. And across denominations, right, we meet in a Lutheran church, in uh, Newport News, there's a Reformed church that meets on Sunday. We don't say, oh, we'll pray for you, but we certainly aren't partnering with you. No, God wants to do a work through his church, right? But whether you're, you're minors, the, the minor doctrines are different. No, God wants to work through each of us. And here we get to rent from Faith Lutheran in Newport News. We get to host three different churches in that building. And that's a dream. For some churches, it's a nightmare. 
Because, again, they see other churches as competition. But that whole idea of family from the first hello, now, it's not just about our faces here. It's about other churches. When you see another church down the road, celebrate them, pray for them, cheer for them. We're all trying to seek and save the lost and reach this city and this region. So that's another element of family from the first hello. But let me land this plane. Again, the Greeks, they knew the heart of man. Or they studied it. They didn't know it. But in their stories, they would tell stories about it. Paul, likewise, had insight into the heart of man. And the pull that we have towards mirrors, echo chambers, divisions, and alike. So nearly every letter Paul writes to a church in the New Testament has a verse or a chapter, but somewhere this declarative statement about unity and fighting division. So as I'm studying this sermon, I'm like collecting them all. Like it's just a little fun game for me. I'm like, I'm going to find the verse in every one of Paul's letters to the church. And so Galatians 3.28 is my favorite where he says, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and male and female, for you are all one in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.13 to the church in Corinth, he says, some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free, but we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Colossians 3.11, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Then to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2.14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And you get to Philippians. You're looking for like the cry against division and gender or race or class or any line in the sand. And there's really no crystal clear declarative statement. And maybe you'd ask why. Well, Philippians is the, the one, ver, excuse me, one book, letter that Paul wrote to a church in the New Testament where he's not actively correcting some behavior or some teaching and doctrine. The Philippians basically show us what a maturing church should look like and what maturing people do. And that means that they, they got unity. They understood that division is a trap. And maybe you say, okay, what was their secret? How? How did they do it? And I think the secret is when you go back and look at Acts 16, where Paul plants the church in Philippi. And you begin to see the cast of characters that made up the church plant. Like we had a cast of characters, but it doesn't rival the, the church in Philippi. Right, the first member of this, you could call it church plant, is Lydia. She's an Asian woman that we meet in Acts 16. She's wealthy. She's a fashionista. She's an intellect and a seeker, right? She gathered to hear scripture explained and hosted gatherings. And she becomes a believer through the impartation of truth and knowledge. So Lydia. Second character, we don't even have her name. She's a trafficked slave girl, possessed, again in Acts 16. Unlike the independently rich Lydia, she's been impoverished and exploited. She's Greek, she's irrational, she's possessed. And she's saved not through knowledge, but by sheer power of the Holy Spirit, a rebuke by Paul and a miracle of God and deliverance. So we've got Lydia, fashionista, got a, a formerly trafficked slave girl. And then the third character we meet is a Roman jailer, again in Acts 16. He's middle class. He's blue-collar, likely an ex-soldier who enjoys his job. And what's funny to me is he kind of enjoyed it a little too much. The authorities, they've arrested Paul, right, and they say take care of him. He tortures him, right? He liked his job a little too much. B.C., he was a jerk. We can make note of that. 
But this Roman jailer, he's not bound by duty. He's not some deep-thinking intellectual probably, probably not especially spiritual. Middle class, blue collar. So we've got a wealthy Asian fashionista, a formerly possessed traffic slave girl, and a blue-collar Roman jailer. And these three people with wildly different backgrounds, probably behavior, worldviews, these people superficially are incompatible. And yet they, with Paul, planted one of the healthiest churches he ever planted. And, you know, I can remember, and I've joked about it before, when I was 21, fresh out of William & Mary when the Newport News Campus got planted, that church plant with its cast of characters. And I've shared it before. I remember, like, three weeks in looking around the room and thinking, if it wasn't for our love for Jesus, I could probably count on a couple fingers, like, how many of these people would be my friends, right? Nobody's been there? Okay. <laughs> Maybe I was just a super big mess at 21, recently saved at that church plant. But I was like, if it wasn't for our common love for Jesus, but we do have a common love for Jesus. And if you've been there, that's not a bad thing because the church should be a community that would have never formed on its own. All right, aside from the grace of God, a fashionista, a blue-collar jailer, and a former demon-possessed slave probably aren't going to be rubbing shoulders weekly. But how will you respond when you're at church and you're rubbing shoulders in worship with the tax collector, the person who looks and lives nothing like you, who maybe you even fundamentally disagree with on some issues, the one who believes or behaves differently than you do. Again, if you take one verse home with you tonight, let it be Romans 15, 7, which is a motto for our moment where Paul says, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you. Again, why? So that God will be given glory. You know, before Christ put the stamp on our acceptance eternally with his death on the cross and his resurrection, he prayed for the church. We have it in, in the Gospel of John. He prays for his followers then and every follower to come. Prayed for you, right, that night in John 17. And his prayer was this. He says, I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Again, our witness, God's glory, tied to our love for one another, our unity. Again, if Jesus is going to be lifted up and the world will know God's glory, it's going to take us laying down our mirrors, stepping out of our echo chambers, and coming alongside a diverse family of faith in worship, around dinner tables, in relationship, at life groups. Not due to agreement in all things, but because God's grace has covered all things. Accepting others as Christ accepted us so that God will be given the glory. Again, we talked about it, how for years we've talked about heaven now, heaven forever. Yes, there's a heaven to come, but God wants to give us a taste of that, whet our appetites for that by showing his goodness in the land of the living. And one way we taste that and get a taste of heaven's glory is the picture of Revelation 4. No longer tied to tribalism or division, but every tribe, party, and tongue praising his name. Just think about heaven, right? The, the desert fathers, these African men from centuries ago, they're up there praising God. Hebrew scholars up there praising God. Uh, people that live where Raj is from in India up there praising God. All these different people praising God. God wants to give us a taste of that here. We don't have to wait for it. So typically we would have the worship team come up. We'd have five to ten minutes of worship, but we talked before service and kind of pivoted. Talking to, to Gina, we would normally close with our moment of worship, right? Because it's powerful. 
But I just felt like tonight we were going to pivot. Because, again, I don't think the path forward for the church is that we need to have agreement on all things across the aisle. But we do need to show grace across the aisle. Right? Embrace the family of faith. Maybe expand our perspective. So often our perspective's not off. It just needs to expand. I've shared it before. One of the greatest gifts of the church right, is that there's people in here with all different walks of life that they've walked. So many different experiences. Right? So many. And when you form a relationship with them, it gives you just a bigger picture of who God is. A bigger picture of what he wants to do through us and through his church. So I want to spend tonight, we got five minutes, right? Just five extra minutes to not bust out that door and go straight to your car, but to find somebody, talk to them, learn their name, and begin to embrace your family of faith. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're not going into a worship set. Zach's going to turn worship on quietly. But maybe you're, you're quick to get out of here, hop in your car and be out. There's a church for you. Might not be this one. Right? Here, <laughs> we want to embrace the family of faith. We want to, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Romans 15, we're walking that together. So let's, we're going to turn music on quietly, but let me pray. Let me pray. I'm just going to close from this passage at the end of Jude. It's a prayer of praise where it says, Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time, and in the present and beyond all time, amen. Come on, if you need prayer for anything, we got folks that would love to pray for you. Otherwise, just take the next five minutes. Don't zip out of here. We got coffee. Maybe you need to pick up your kids. That's cool. But let's spend some time embracing our family of faith and making this moment we've talked about tonight our own.